Our passage this morning, again, is Romans, the first chapter. And uh, I will read the entire chapter, but we're going to be focusing on two verses this morning. uh, Verses 16 and particularly 17. This is uh, the first chapter of the book of Romans, written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is inerrant, which means without error, and infallible, which means without the possibility of error, because it comes directly from God. So uh, please, again, uh, give it your full attention. Chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, 
men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Again, our focus is on chapter 1 in Romans, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it it is written, the just shall live by faith. You notice the sermon title this morning. Western civilization began on Saturday just before noon. Actually, it began a few minutes before noon on October 31, 1517. You don't learn that in school, but at least not in... I didn't learn it in school, of course, I'm, as, you'll, as you'll soon figure out, I'm a product of public schools. That assertion is made by Dr. John Robbins in his book, Civilization and the Protestant Reformation. And it's a true statement. On that day, an obscure Augustinian priest, a Roman, uh, what we call Roman Catholic, or what they call themselves, Roman priest, uh, and by then Rome had hijacked the church, as you, as you know, in the small town of Wittenberg, Germany, by the name, this priest's name, of course, uh, was Dr. Martin Luther. He posted the famous 95 theses, 95 theological issues on the church door. Now, this wasn't an unusual thing to do. The church door was a bullet, community bulletin board, and people did that. And when they wanted to have a discussion, when they wanted some questions, they have a public meeting, uh, they'd say, you know, I'm calling a public meeting, let's, you know, such and such a time, let's discuss these issues. So that was a common thing to do. He wanted debate on these 95 issues or theses. Uh, it was not his intention to bring down the Roman church. It was not his intention to start a new church. Uh, he would, uh, he, he didn't want to, you know, the idea of a Lutheran church to him would be horrifying at this, particularly this time. Uh, he wanted to make the only church that was existent. You know, at that time, you, you didn't have your choice, so there was a Baptist church and a Methodist church. And there was one church, and that was what we call the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't the, the only church, unless you were living in uh, uh, the mountains of northern Italy, uh, with the Waldensians or a few other places, uh, that was it. Uh, now it, uh, and there were a few few places even in, under Rome that were not uh, favorable to the uh, Bishop of Rome, but that's another issue. Uh, so you didn't have your choices. So he wanted to make the Roman faith more biblical. That action turned the world upside down, or I would say it turned the world right side up. 
It's no exaggeration, and we'll get into this a little later, to say that individual liberty, political freedom, constitutional representative government, not democracy, free elections, the free market, protection of private property, protection of women in society and in the family, and many, many, many more things spring from what Martin Luther did a few minutes before noon on October 31, 1517. What caused this priest, Luther, to do what he did was the way the Vatican was raising money. That was the impetus for him among that was the, let me put it this way, that was the external, the earthly impetus for him, not the spiritual impetus. Particularly the aggressive fundraising to complete St. Peter's uh, in Rome. St. Peter's took, I don't know how many you know, decades and centuries to build, they kept adding on to it. Um, and each pope wanted to leave his mark on St. Peter's, so they had to raise a lot more money. Uh, but the pope and his representatives were telling people the more money they gave, the more their sins would be forgiven. And both for themselves and for their dead loved ones who were suffering, of course, in purgatory. Now, as you know, Romanism taught and still teaches that if you die outside their faith, you will go to hell. They just reaffirmed that in the last couple of years. Uh, I was taught that growing up in the Roman faith. I grew up uh, in, in that communion. And they recently, as I said, reaffirmed it in nice language. They say, if you die as a communicant in the Roman church, you won't, uh, oh, excuse me, they say if you die outside the Roman church, you'll go to hell. And even if you die as a faithful communicant, a faithful member of the Roman Catholic communion, you won't go to heaven right away. You'll go to a place called purgatory. Now, don't try to look in your concordance of your Bible for the word purgatory. You know, it's not going to be there. Now, the doctrine of purgatory comes from a book uh, that is not in the Hebrew Bible, which is, of course, our Old Testament. Uh, the Jews did not recognize this book, and that's where we get our Old Testament. We get it from the Hebrew Bible. It comes from an apocryphal book, a book outside the scriptures, never been generally accepted by the church except by Rome, and that quite late, that nobody regarded as part of scripture until Rome said, yes, it is. And that book is called the book of Second Maccabees, and there's a reference to what uh, they call purgatory in there. Purgatory is, as you probably know, where you supposedly go when you die to purge you of your remaining sins. You can go to confession and have, your, and, go, uh, and, and have communion, last rites, have your sins forgiven, but you still have some sins that need to be burned off. Uh, it's not forever, just some period of time, for some for a few years, for other hundreds of years, thousands of years. We don't know. We don't, only the Lord knows. Uh, and, but it's not forever. And despite what they say today, if you look it up, you know, look up their writings, they'll say, well, no, purgatory and hell are, are two different things. They've said for centuries that purgatory and hell are the same. So, you know, if they were infallible, that's a problem with infallibility. Once you make a statement, you can't go back and say, well, that pope was wrong because he was infallible. That's why Rome can never change. Rome can never change because what they, what, if, then they'd have to change the doctrine of infallibility and they're not going to do that. And who's infallible? Was the pope 200 years ago, 500 years ago, and what he said infallible and uh, then therefore you can't disagree with him? Or is the pope today infallible and therefore that guy, even though we said he was infallible, wasn't? See, they, they put themselves in a box. But the writers have said, Purgatory and hell are the same. The only difference is the extent of time you spend there. A well-known Roman theologian, uh, Cardinal Bellarmine, as I recall, wrote that the flames of hell are no hotter than the flames of purgatory. 
It's not a place you want to be, even if it did exist. Rome told the people if you gave them money, you'd get your sins forgiven, many of your sins, and spend less time in purgatory. You could even give more money to get your parent or grandparent or uncle or whoever out of purgatory earlier. Those are still called indulgences. I grew up with indulgences uh, by the Vatican. I was told that if a person says so many prayers, you get so many indulgences. If you go to Mass, you get an indulgences. If you do certain good works, you'll get 200 days of indulgences, which knocks your time off purgatory or seven years or whatever it might be or how much money you give. According to one author, to meet the various and heavy expenses of the extravagant Pope Leo uh, X, uh, 1513 to 1521 he was Pope, the cry for money became louder and louder. Money, money was the cry. It was money, says one, not charity that covered a multitude of sins. Necessity suggested that the price of indulgences should be lowered they weren't getting enough money, so as good marketers, they said, well, let's lower our price and we'll, get, we'll actually make more in the end. Uh, and that clever salesman should be employed to push the trade all over Europe. Leo, Pope Leo sent out suitable agents into different parts of Europe with sacks of indulgences and dispensations. For a given amount, a dispensation could be purchased to eat meat on Fridays. You weren't supposed to eat meat on Fridays, but if you gave the Vatican some money, yeah, it's okay, you can do it. You, got, you, you can do that. Uh, or to marry one's near relative and to indulge in every forbidden pleasure. This system of buying God's mercy for money, which is what it is, was so worked by the priesthood that it became the means of enormous wealth to the papacy. The peddlers moved on. They extolled their wares with shouts and jokes. They assured the people that pardon of sins and the salvation of their souls could now be purchased at greatly reduced prices. It was a sale. (laughs) Buy one, get one free. Crowds of buyers came forward, and the money of the faithful flowed in plentifully. At length, they appeared in Saxony. The archbishop and other spiritual dignitaries had promised the pope their support in this shameless and iniquitous traffic in consideration that they would receive a share of the profits. So business went on increasingly and uninterruptedly until the noisy hawkers came near to Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther was. Amongst the many salesmen in this great papal fair, one man in particular attracted the attention of the spectators. This was the Dominican monk John Tetzel, a name which has acquired an odious notoriety in European history. These dealers traversed the country in great state, lived in good style, spent money freely. When the procession approached a town, a deputy waited on the magistrate and said, the magistrate being the top civil leader of the ruler of that area, A deputy came and said, The grace of God and of the Holy Father is at your gates. Such a proclamation in those times of superstition was enough to move the quietest cities of Germany to the greatest excitement. The clergy, priests, nuns, town councils, and tradesmen with their banners, men and women, old and young, went out to meet the merchants, bearing lighted candles and advancing to the sound of music. The streets everywhere were hung with flags, bells were pealed, nuns and monks walked in procession, crying, Bye! Bye! The great merchant monk himself, Tetzel, sat in a chariot holding a large red cross in his hand and with the papal bull, the papal doctrine of, you know, by the indulgences, on a velvet cushion before him. The churches were the sale rooms, the coat of arms of the Pope were hung on the red cross and placed before the altar. Tetzel now ascended the pulpit and loudly extolled in rude eloquence the efficacy of indulgences. You may have heard this one. His constant refrain was, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. 
He would shout to the people, Indulgences are the most precious and the most noble of God's gifts. Come and I will give you letters, all properly sealed, by which even the sins that you intend to commit may be pardoned. I would not change my privileges for those of St. Peter in heaven, for I have saved more souls by my indulgences than the apostle by his sermons. There is no sin so great that an indulgence cannot remit. But more than this, indulgences avail not only for the living but for the dead. Priest, noble, merchant, wife, youth, maiden, do you not hear your parents and your other friends who are dead and who cry from the bottom of the abyss? We are suffering horrible torments. A trifling alms would deliver us. You can give it and you will not. Oh, stupid and brutish people who do not understand the grace so richly offered. Why, the very instant your money rattles at the bottom of the chest, the soul escapes from purgatory and flies, liberated to heaven. The Lord our God no longer reigns. He has resigned all power to the Pope. Unquote. Tetzel. Tetzel said... Forgiveness for witchcraft would cost two ducats. For polygamy, six ducats. For murder, eight ducats. So forth. He had a whole schedule. The easy terms on which men could obtain the Pope's license for every species of wickedness opened the way to the grossest immorality. Think about it. If you can, if you can buy forgiveness of sin for money, go out and do whatever you want and not worry about going to hell, right? Or purgatory. Got enough money? The more money you have, the more wicked you can be. So it opened the way to the grossest immorality, and the popes and his representatives raised untold sums by telling people God's mercy could be bought. And that's what so offended Luther, this whole idea that God's mercy can be bought with money. Luther knew from Scripture that salvation is a free gift from God. You can't buy it with money, and unlike what you will hear in most of the churches today, you can't buy it with good works. can't please God with good works before you're saved. You can't, you can't good works come after salvation. And his 95 propositions, Luther's 95 theses, questioning this whole practice of indulgences, that's what most of them are, it's all about indulgences, of selling God's favor, forgiveness of sins for money. The germ of the Reformation was contained in those 95 theses. Now, it didn't, I should say there's, there's a lot that went on before Luther, and a lot the Lord just didn't you know, okay, let's have a Reformation. It's been going on for a long time. We'll get into the, that someday. Luther said the Pope's indulgence cannot take away sins. God alone remits sins, and he pardons those who are truly penitent without help from man's absolutions, you know, man's penance and such. The church may remit, and man's, and the Pope's forgiveness is what he's saying. The church may remit penalties which the church inflicts, but the church's power is in this world only. It extends not beyond death. And this is still Luther. Who is this man who dares to say that for so many crowns money, the soul of a sinner can be saved? Every true Christian participates in all the blessings of Christ by God's grace and without a letter of indulgence, unquote. Well, the controversy that broke loose with this 95 Theses placed even more pressure on Luther to study the Bible because he was under a great attack. And the Pope and the Cardinals and the Bishops and all the priests and the theologians of the church were all attacking Luther. So he studied his Bible even more than he had before. And that convinced him more and more that the Roman faith had lost sight of several central truths, not just indulgences, he found out. And 
he, the most important of these truths that he discovered in the Bible is the doctrine that brought him peace with God. It wasn't just about indulgences. Luther came to this understanding to tremendous agony of soul. He had been a very obedient monk. He was faithful to Rome. He had studied and learned all that they had to teach him. Uh, he became a teacher himself. Uh, he did good works to earn God's favor. He suffered. He inflicted suffering on himself to earn God's favor. Uh, you know, if, if, if Jesus suffered for me, then I should suffer for him. That's, that's the thinking there. Yet peace with God has, had escaped him. He went on pilgrimages. He spent hours in prayer on his knees. He devoted himself to long fastings. I remember being taught as a kid about a saint who was on his knees so much he developed calluses on his knees, and we were to emulate that. Uh, I saw a man in uh, visiting uh, Mexico City, the uh, Guadalupe, the Virgin of Guadalupe in Mexico City. I get all those virgins mixed up. But uh, Mary Mary, quite contrary, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I saw a man, this giant, some of you probably been there, this giant uh, plaza outside the, the church uh, where the Guadalupe shawl is. And they have, it's rough bricks and, you know, stones and things. And I saw a man on his knees crawling to the church. On his knees. I'm not going to get up. I'm going to get up. Right. Just crawling on his knees. And he had his jeans were all torn up. He obviously had been crawling for quite a while. But, well, if Jesus suffered for me, I should suffer for him, right? Okay, back to Luther. He did all this kind of stuff. And Luther was in constant confession of his sins, both privately and going to a confessor. That is another priest where you confess your sins, you receive absolution, you receive penance. Uh, that had to, you have to do to be absolved of your sin. Penance, you know, are, as you know, are works that you have to do uh, to be to be forgiven of your sins. You know, usually prayers. I used to, you know, my penance would be, you know, say ten Hail Marys and five Our Fathers. You know, so you you go out and you sit in the pew at, after you've been in the confessional and and you, as a kid anyway. You get through those as quickly as you can. I mean, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blood art thou among the blessed, the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, holy Mary, mother God, perfect sinners, now they are death of men. Hail Mary, mother God, perfect. You know, on and on. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be the name of the King of the Lord. That's those are your penances, and then you're forgiven. But the more Luther tried to do for God, the more aware he became of his sinfulness. But isn't that true of all of us? The more we study the Bible, the more we meditate on God, the more we realize how we should live, the more we're aware of our sinfulness. I read once, uh, you know, we, we might think we're doing pretty well and all, and the closer we approach the light of Christ, the light of God's glory, the more our robes show all of the stain of sin. If we're far away from God, we look pretty good. The closer we get, wow. Luther was trying to answer for himself the question that people have struggled with since time began. How can I be right with God? I see I don't live perfectly. How can I be right with God? I'm a sinner. Luther was tormented by realizing he sinned all the time. He could never live as he should. That is perfectly. Perfectly? Yeah. 
Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Luther read that, like we all have, I'm sure, and said, Perfect? How is it possible for us to live perfect? Yet you are commanded to live perfectly. Now, he didn't say, do the best you can. That'll be fine. Uh, He doesn't say, as long as you say to me when you die, well, I tried my best, I'll let you into heaven. No, that's not the Bible. Jesus Christ himself said, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, what else would you expect the Lord Jesus Christ to say? And we know that there's no one that's perfect except the Lord Jesus Christ. Our perfection is in him. So when God looks at us, he says, you're perfect because I see Christ in you, the hope of glory. I see forgiveness of sins. Uh, I don't see my child. I don't see any sin in you. When Luther went to confession and received forgiveness from the priest, he would come back in a few minutes. And the priest would say, what are you doing back here, Martin, Brother Martin? Well, on the way out of church, I had an impure thought. So I had to come back. He'd keep doing this. And he'd leave and come back again and come back in a few minutes because he'd been told if he died with any sin on his soul before he'd get last rites, uh, at, at the worst, he'd spend a long time in purgatory and not possibly go to hell. Uh, Isaiah 59.2 says that sin separates man from God. And James 2.10 says even one sin does it. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He's guilty of breaking it all. And Luther was right. But where Luther went wrong, or when Rome went wrong, and what Luther had taught, and what tormented Luther, is because he believed what he had been taught, that forgiveness of sins comes through rituals and penances and things that you do to get forgiveness of sins, called works righteousness, just like millions today. Luther had been taught that salvation or justification is the result of something you do in cooperation with God, even to the point of making a decision for Christ. Now, from our perspective, it looks like we made a decision for Christ, but when you read the Bible later, you, you come to see that you know, that's not, not the case. Um, and this goes to the very heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of the gospel. And that's why I wanted to spend some time with you on this this morning. See, Luther was in perpetual torment because he saw how sinful he was. He knew the agony of which Paul wrote. If you turn to Romans chapter 7, I mean, this is, this is the cry of anyone who is, whose heart has, been, heart has been touched by God. Romans chapter 7. Let's start, begin with 18. This is Paul. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do. The would that I. Let's try it again. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, that I would not, it is no more that I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that what, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 
I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The Lord opened his eye. That was Martin Luther, and that's all of us. Martin Luther, under the oppression of what Rome had taught and what Rome believes to this day. And then the Lord opened his eyes to the meaning of Romans chapter 1. Verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That became became his life verse, I guess you'd say. Let's call it today. The just shall live by faith. By faith, we find that in his writings and margins. Quite often, he'll just write, "The just shall live." See, he wasn't living by faith as a Roman priest. He was living by works, and of course, there's no there's no satisfaction, there's no assurance in works. The just shall live by faith. But what does it mean to live by faith? Sanctification. The life of faith is a life of sanctification. In Galatians three eleven. Paul is actually quoting Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. It's also quoted uh, there in, in Romans 7, uh, 1.17, as I mentioned, uh, just read. Also quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. In Romans, the purpose in the context puts emphasis on the man. The justified man shall live by faith. In Hebrews, the emphasis in the context is on faith. The just shall live by faith. And in Galatians, the emphasis is on living. The just shall live by faith. And Romans 3.28 expands upon it when it says, A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The just shall live by faith without the deed, without doing good things. Should we do good things? Yeah, of course. Let's do good things when we're saved. But we aren't justified by them. We aren't saved by them. Does that mean we can sin all we like because we're justified? Well, somebody who thinks that, that's a real good indication that you're not justified, you're not saved. Because if you think you can just sin because we're saved, if you're truly saved, Scripture says God gives you a new heart. And that new heart is just what Paul says. In the inward man, you don't want to sin. You have the freedom to sin, and won't go to hell. There's no sin that will send you to hell, except one. And that's rejecting belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only sin that's going to send you to hell. But do you sin because, well, I'm forgiven you know, through Christ like sin? No, that's, that's proof there that you're not forgiven through Christ. Uh, and you grieve when you sin. Justification is a legal transaction. Think of a courtroom. Like an earthly judge declaring you've been found not guilty of your crime hammer or the, the uh, gavel comes down, it's a one-time, once-for-all event. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, therefore, what happens? We're going to see a therefore, and then something happens, right? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be at peace since we have been justified one time, once for all, forever, for eternity. 
not something we have to worry about day by day or earn our salvation or you know lose our salvation, have to go back and get it. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. You're justified by faith apart from your works, apart from how much money you give to the church or how many old ladies you help across the street. In the words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which we, again, please look at that. We quoted that earlier in the service. I always tell my congregation, I'm not sure I've ever preached a sermon that I didn't quote these verses. <laughs> I'm sure I have, you know, but I, I, you know, I keep coming back to them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace, you've got to pick this apart in your mind, because this, this is, falls into several, uh, f- uh, what's the word I want, phrases or you know, parts. For by grace are ye saved. What's grace? God's, God's free decision, that's all. It's God's pleasure. Okay. For by grace are you saved, how? Through faith. Oh, so I, I got faith, yeah. But that's not of yourselves. Faith is not of you. It is a gift. It is the gift of God. Not of anything you do. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Forgive me. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, take it apart. For by the Lord's good pleasure, you are saved through faith that he's given you not something you've stirred up in yourself or created or made a decision. It's the gift of God. Not of anything you do. Well, why would that be? Lest any man should boast. The Lord wants all the credit, if you will. He doesn't want you to be able to say anything at all that you contributed in any way to your salvation. Why not? Because that's a little germ, a little seed that will grow and grow into the most horrendous pride you think you did anything to bring about your salvation, it grows, grows, and grows into the most tremendous, horrendous pride. And that's a horrible thing. Look at, uh, by the way, I, you know, we, we had a reading uh, last Lord's Day in uh, Bernie. Look at the Gospel of John for a minute. And I, you know, you know, I'm not, Lord really has to hit me over the head many times to, uh, to get my attention. And, uh, where did we... Uh... Okay. In chapter 1 in the Gospel of John, I just saw something that just kind of clicked. Read it, you know, obviously many times, but never really thought of it in this context. Let's, let's pause for a moment. Beginning in verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And I thought of it in context with that, with the, the, the Ephesians verse. How an Arminian can read this, where it says, We were born not of the will of man. We're born by God's free gift, by His grace. How an Arminian can read that and still remain an Arminian is amazing. You may remember, by the way, do you know the 
true story of how Luther discovered the Bible? They say it was a priest when he discovered the Bible. They didn't teach him the Bible in seminary. You didn't hear the Bible when you went to church. You heard, you heard the priests gave little stories. Most of them were, uh, I won't say most were illiterate, but there were priests that were illiterate. The people, were, a lot of them were illiterate. And the priest would, his homily, sermon, was just little stories, nice little stories. They didn't know the scriptures. There's, there's a famous story, I think it was in the Scottish Reformation when they were burning uh, Calvinists. Uh, there was a Roman priest and this one martyr, covenanter, had a copy of uh, the New Testament uh, that he carried with him. And this Roman priest looked at it and he says, I know not what this is, but I know it's of the devil. Roman priest. So, Luther didn't know about the Bible. Nobody had their Bible in their home when they were growing up. Uh, mass printing was in its infancy, uh, which is another story of how the Lord used mass printing and just timed it with the Reformation. That's just fantastic, but we don't want to be here all week. Books were hand-copied. They were extremely expensive. There were very few, and they were pretty much owned by the church or the nobility, people with a lot of money. The first time Luther saw a Bible was in the library of his monastery. And there was only one, and it was chained to the wall. Uh, now it was done, I'm sure, because it was rare and valuable, and they knew it was stolen. Uh, but it's an instructive metaphor, if you think about it. The Roman faith hid the Bible away in the, in the bowels of a monastery, chained to a wall, kept away from the people. And to make it an even more instructive metaphor, it was written in Latin, a language nobody could read, except Roman scholars who weren't interested in reading it anyway. Perfect illustration of what Rome thought of the Word of God. They didn't teach it in their seminaries. They didn't preach it in their pulpits. They kept it in a dead language that few could read and few who were interested to read it and chained it inside the walls of a monastery where people weren't allowed to come in. But Luther read it, and the Lord opened his eyes. A man is justified by faith, not of works, as Rome claimed. Finally, Luther had to say, Rome is an error. It's wrong. Well, you didn't say that. Mm, remember, remember the Vatican uh, uh, was very, very powerful. Papacy was extremely powerful. The Pope said he was above all kings, that all kings should serve him. Uh, when King John rebelled against that, uh, as he did, as the Pope did with other places that rebelled, but I'm thinking in England particularly, uh, he put England under an interdict. And there's, there was so much power that the papacy had to control countries, political power I'm talking about. They put him under what they called an interdict. And that meant that the priests would not say mass, they would not conduct funerals, they would not marry anyone, you couldn't be buried uh, in consecrated ground. And the people were like frantic. They thought they'd all go to hell. Uh, and so tremendous pressure on the king to buddy up to the pope. And so King John did. And the story of King John standing outside in the cold, waiting to see the pope, the papal legate, the, the, the pope's representative to, to England. They made him stand out in the freezing cold, the king of England, and finally let him in. And he begged forgiveness, and, and uh, he took his crown off, 
and put it at the feet of the Pope's representative, basically putting it at the feet of the Pope, the crown of the, of the, of the uh, throne of England. And the papal legate looked at it and kicked it across the room to show that the Pope is the one who rules in England, not you. You do what we tell you. And that's true. that was true all over Europe. Uh, any place that the papacy would, uh, would, would exercise their influence. So you didn't say to them, well, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, you risked extreme, extreme risk, including death as a, as a heretic. You know, remember, they still burned heretics alive. Uh, stories of the Waldensians, the Covenanters, Lollards, Hussites, Huguenots. The Inquisition was in full fiery force for generation. Uh, they discovered a, a pit in Spain where the ashes of people who had been burned to death are like this all over the area, just a pile up of bones. By the way, despite, you'll never hear this in, in school, uh, there's no evidence that when Christians were in power anywhere in the world that they persecuted Catholics. No evidence of that. Uh, the other way around, there's a lot of evidence. Uh, you've heard, I mean, I think, You've heard Queen Mary of England, Bloody Mary. Uh, do you know how she got that name? Because of all the Christians she tortured and killed. Many burned alive. So Luther knew that by teaching people that salvation could be bought by money, by good works, that the Roman Catholic faith was sending millions of people to hell. Aren't they? If salvation can be bought by money and good works, isn't that the road to hell? And his heart broke over that. But Rome knew that if people believed Luther, their income would dry up. So they essentially said, well, we don't care what this monk says the Bible says. We are not familiar with it and we don't want to know. We want the money. So we have to stop Luther by whatever means is necessary. And to compound the Pope's fears, and because he was under persecution and, and, and all this, he started writing books, Luther. Uh... What was most threatening to the Pope was that Luther started translating the Bible into German so everybody in the country could read it. Uh, this is when mass printing was starting to come in. The Lord providentially made the printing of books more common. The invention of movable type in the Gutenberg Press, it was what, 50 years before the, uh, Luther nailed, nailed up, so it's just the timing was perfect. And what happened? Was the Pope happy that, oh, the people in Germany can read the Bible now? Or at least have it read to them in German by the priests? No, he reacted like a mad dog. Uh, the civil government, which was in the pocket of the Pope, put Luther on trial and ordered him to retract his teachings. Luther knew that refusing to retract his teachings at best could mean his banishment. Uh, it could mean probably that he'd go to a dank, vermin-infested prison cell where he would be starved and probably die in a short time. Uh, could mean he'd be tortured and executed. He knew at least one of those outcomes would be the result if he refused to say, I recant, I take back what I said that you object to. When they insisted he recant, what did he say? Well, he didn't say this right away. He slept on it. And the next day he said, knowing that this could be his death, knowing that at least it would be horrible, Consequences, He said, unless I am convinced by proof from scriptures or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I cannot and will not retract. For it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.
Miraculously, he was allowed to leave with a warning to stop teaching and stop writing books. That's because Luther had a very influential supporter in Germany, a ruler of a German province, and the Pope wanted to please this fellow. So the Pope said, well, temporarily we'll let Luther go and please the elector and and this ruler, and uh, I'll I'll get out uh, on it just fine. So we don't have time to tell the whole story. Luther was promised safe passage by the Pope, and then he was ambushed by the Pope's assassins. Uh, the assassin sent by the Pope, and he almost lost his life, but he miraculously escaped. He finished his translation of the Bible into the language of the people. And by translating the Bible, he freed the German people from the tyranny of Rome. Because people read the Bible and say, well, that's not what I was taught by the priests. They could compare what the priests said to what God said and see how far Rome was from the truth of the Bible, and that just fed the fire of the Reformation. And then other countries... Same way, same thing, it it branched out. The idea that the Bible was the written constitution of the church, limiting the power and authority of the leaders, that's what the Bible does, carried over into the idea that a nation could have a written constitution limiting the power and authority of the nation's rulers, the nation's leaders. So there's a direct connection of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, that is, the scripture alone and the American idea of the written constitution as the supreme law of the land. Just as the Bible is the supreme law of the church, the national constitution is the supreme law under the Bible of the nation. Now, Luther argued that Christians were free from the arbitrary control of either the church or the state when, the, when either the church or the state acted against God's word. When the state of the church acts against God's word, Christians are free from that control. Luther wrote, quote, It is with the word that we must fight. By the word must we overthrow and destroy what has been set up by violence. I will not make use of force against the superstitious and unbelieving. No one must be constrained. Liberty is the very essence of faith. I will preach, discuss, and write, but I will constrain none, for faith is a voluntary act. I have stood up against the Pope, indulgences and papists, but without violence or tumult. I put forward God's word. I preached and wrote. This was all I did. The word alone did all. If I had wished to appeal to force, the whole of Germany would perhaps have been deluged with blood because he had so many followers. Political liberty, freedoms, private property, etc. were not the only social consequences of the Protestant Reformation. They were the beginning of a revolution that has implications for us 500 years later. Harold Berman of Emory University wrote, quote, the key to the renewal of law in the West from the 16th century on was the Protestant concept of the power of the individual by God's grace to change nature and to change new social relations through the exercise of his will. God's will, as I would say, Berman is, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Uh, but he says, the Protestant concept of the individual became central to the development of the modern law of property and contract. And what he's saying is the Protestant idea from the Bible that the culture can be changed. We can change the culture under God by following God's law. Before, people were what we would call today brainwashed. They didn't have God's word. They believed whatever the priest told them. They believed whatever the civil government told them. And they didn't change culture. 
feudal society. And that all changed after the Reformation. Luther showed the people from Scripture that all vocations, callings, all labor, not just the labor of monks and nuns and priests could be done to the glory of God. See, people thought their labor was you know, only the priests and the nuns and the, and the church people. They did that to the glory of God. I'm just, a, I'm just a farmer. I'm just a laborer. No. We don't have time to develop this, but this idea led to the free market economy. A free society and a free market were the political and economic expressions of the religious idea of the Protestant Reformation. Free market capitalism came directly from the Bible. The truth that we're justified by grace through Christ without works is the thunderbolt that the reformers hurled that shook Europe and Rome to its very core. Wherever the teachings of the Protestant Reformation took root, they toppled the medieval economic and political systems and replaced them with free markets and free men. Some more, some more perfectly than others in other places, obviously. They replaced blind obedience to Roman priests with the priest's claims to have the power to forgive sins. Do you know that? Roman priests say they have the power to forgive sins. They have the power to call Christ down from his throne to become a piece of bread. They replaced all that with the biblical priesthood of all believers. Reformers threw out justification by works for the truth of justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. There are great blessings to this. I'm going to finish with this observation. There are great blessings to the truth of justification by faith alone and nothing of ourselves. It's profoundly humbling to your heart know that you have no goodness of your own apart from grace. Do you ever think about it this way? What did you have to do with your physical birth? Did you choose when you were going to be born or whether you're going to be born a man or a woman or where in the world you were going to be born or anything like that? No. You had nothing to do with it, did you? We have nothing to do with our spiritual birth either. The Lord chooses when and where how. Now, that's not my comparison. It's that of the Lord Jesus. Remember, the, just as the wind blows, or you don't know where it comes from, where it's going, so thus is the Holy Spirit as well. Justification by faith alone makes us take our eyes off ourselves and look to Christ, crying, Thou hast saved me. I read somewhere, I looked I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I looked at the dove and it flew away. I took some thinking about it. I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. I took my eyes off Christ and looked at the dove of peace and how happy I was. And, oh, what, what God has done for me. But I took my eyes off Christ and thought about myself and the dove of peace left me. But if we believe it's by faith alone, take our eyes off ourselves and look to Christ crying, Thou hast saved me, you're going to walk humbly in moment by moment dependence on Him, glorifying Him in every event of your life. 
You'll know that he rules his creation. He gives life to the dead. He gives salvation to the sinner. You will bow to him in humble adoration and look to him as your very life. Nothing brings us so low in humility. And nothing brings us such joy and profound gratitude than to know in our heart there is nothing in me to merit God's favor. That if I'm saved, God has done it all. Another blessing of this truth is that we're saved by grace through faith and not through anything of ourselves. It's a great comfort to the unsaved. Now, how can that be? Well, suppose justification was dependent on how obedient you were to God. Do you think you'd make it to heaven? I wouldn't. But I know that God demands total perfection. Even one sin sends you to hell. That's a great comfort to the unsaved because they don't have to think, well, I can't go to heaven. I've done so many bad things. I always sin. I'm never going to be perfect, so how can I work my way to heaven? And you go to the unsaved and you say, you don't work your way to heaven. God's done all the work. From your, your perspective, you believe. You believe. What does the scripture say? Trust in the Lord God with all your heart. Walk. You believe. You believe. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God saved him from the dead and you will be saved. May he give you that faith. May he give us all that faith and give it abundantly. I close with James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, seal these poor words of mine in our hearts insofar as they agree with thy word. Close our ears to any errors that I have made. But Father, uh, plant thy word in our hearts so it may grow in grace. Produce great fruit, great abundance, Father, for the growth of thy kingdom and for thy glory. Father, we give thee thanks for thy great love in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to us for the communication of thy Holy Spirit, for the light and liberty of thy glorious gospel, and the rich and heavenly blessings revealed therein. Lord, we pray for the continuance of the gospel and all the ordinances and thy law and its purity, power, and liberty. Father, we ask that uh, this truth of the justification of uh, thy justification of us uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, burn it into our hearts, Father. Produce in us a, uh, a new resolve to live according to thy will uh, and, uh, and give us peace. Lord, give us the peace that this marvelous truth brings in our heart. Father, we uh, pray for Dana and Jordan. Uh, Lord, uh, lift, lift the sickness from them, Father. Protect that little child, uh, both Jordan and the little child that is with Dana now. Give them, uh, give them all safety, health, strength, and may that little child, uh, whether uh, be born and uh, safely and healthy, and grow into a, a mighty servant of Thee, Father. We expect great things from this child. Father, we uh, pray for the that we would prepare ourselves for our own death and judgment. For our death may come at any time, no matter how old we are or what health we're in. Uh, it's all in, in thy hand, Father. And 
uh, we ask for the forgiveness of our sins and accept our our living sacrifice through the merit and mediation of our great high priest and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dismiss us, Father, to our fellowship, Father, and uh, let us uh, always love thee and be with thee forever. For it is in Jesus' name. Psalm 32. sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.